0: Let me take a moment to lead us in prayer together as a church, that God would make himself known to us and through us during this time. Would you pray with me? Father God, we have come as your church to be your church and to invite you to allow us to experience you as a people in a way that will unite us as one church so that your name could be glorified in this world. Father, we're very familiar with the restrictions that are placed on our uniting right now and our being together. And so we pray, Father God, uh, this morning first and foremost for those who are sick, either because of the coronavirus or other serious illnesses, uh, right here in our own community and even within our own church, God, we pray that you would bring health and healing and recovery to those who are battling illnesses. We pray especially, Father, for members of our church and members of our wider community who are especially vulnerable to this particular virus and other infections. God, would you protect them physically? Would you grant them safety and health? We thank you for those who are working so hard in the health care industry and our government industries to uh, protect us and to lead us. We pray, God, that you would give them wisdom, that you would keep them safe, and that you would provide the care for people who truly need it. God, in this time of of worry and fear, I also pray, Father God, that you would show us how to love one another as a church. Father, for those who do have needs in our body, show us how to love one another and to meet those needs. Where there are financial needs, God, we pray that you would protect employment and jobs. Where jobs have been lost or hours have been cut back, Father God, would you provide would you give what is needed and would you show us how to be generous as a church so that we can love one another in very practical and tangible ways through this time. And God I pray that people in our community would know as you say in your word that we are Christians by our love. And so Father God I pray that that this opportunity that we have for that really truly is what is in front of us. It is, it is a need, it is a difficult situation. And yet this quarantine has also created opportunities for people to slow down, to face perhaps fear and anxiety, perhaps to ask bigger questions. And so I pray Father God that as as a people that, that we as members of Harvest Community Church would be so captivated by your love and that we would be bold enough and courageous enough to reach out to neighbors and friends and coworkers who don't know you as their personal Lord and savior and love them and seek opportunities to share the gospel with them. Father God, we know that there are people in our community who are asking big questions, why? And they're open to hearing the gospel. God, would you lead them to us and lead us to them? Would you take us for who we are as broken and imperfect people, but use our efforts to speak and show and live the gospel. And I pray, God, that we would see hundreds of people come to faith in Christ in the greater Hillsboro area for the rest of this Lent season because our church and so many other Christians and other churches right around us have been faithful to love, serve, reach out, and proclaim the truth. Move the hearts of men and women in our community to receive the truth, to receive you and your forgiveness. God, do your work in and among us right now. Lead us and teach us, I pray, as we get into your word. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. We're gonna continue our series in the book of Exodus and I'm actually very excited because this morning we arrive at what is really, I think, the... The climax, the main passage in the book of Exodus, at the end of chapter 33 and the beginning of chapter 34. I'd like to just read the passage without interruption that we're going to look at this morning, uh, the key parts of it, and then we'll back up and walk through it together. Starting at Exodus chapter 33, verse 17, that's where we left off last week, so we'll pick it up there. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live." Drop down to verse uh, chapter 34, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets, the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze even opposite that mountain. So Moses cut the two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. God, open our eyes now that we may behold wonderful things in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A well-known story in business and leadership circles, I believe based in fact, uh, goes like this. In the 1940s, I believe it was, uh, IBM had survived the Great Depression and like all companies was looking to recover. So uh, gambling on a post-war boom in the economy, uh, the company president, Thomas Watson, had maintained IBM's employment levels by increasing inventories and production that far outstripped the current demand. Excess machinery and parts um, crowded the basements and and filled every nook and cranny of his warehouses. And as those inventories increased, the need to sell that stuff increased as well. Uh, Gradually, some of the board of directors, because of this, were lobbying to remove Watson as IBM's president. He needed these inventories sold and he needed it to happen soon. Well, a very large government bid approaching a million dollars, it's 1940s money, so it's probably multiple millions in today's dollars, uh, came up and it was on the table. Uh, The IBM Corporation needed every deal, uh, maybe the president, uh, Tom Watson needed it perhaps even more so. And the salesman who was involved in it knew the pressure, the guy who was running point for them on this bid. Unfortunately, the salesman who was in charge failed and IBM lost that bid to a competitor. I'm not sure how you would have felt if you were that salesman. But as the story goes, the day that the bid was lost, the sales rep showed up to his boss's office and sat down with an envelope in his hand that contained his resignation letter. Uh, Watson knew what was in the envelope, but rather than opening the letter, he simply asked him what happened. The sales rep Outlined every step of the deal. He highlighted what had taken place what he did in retrospect what he did wrong What he could have done and should have done better Finally he said Thank you, Mr. Watson for giving me a chance to explain. I know we needed this deal I know what it meant to us and he rose to leave the office And as the story goes Tom Watson came around the desk grabbed the envelope met him at the door and barred his way He looked him in the eye and handed the envelope back to him, saying, Why would I accept this when I've just invested a million dollars in your education? Get back to work. Pretty amazing. (laughs) I've run across this story multiple times in leadership classes and books. An amazing story. How would you have felt if you were the salesman now, <laughs> coming into the boss's office with your proverbial hat in your hand, admitting, I'm the one who failed. I knew what this, this meant for us and I couldn't get it done. I know it, I, I ought to be fired. Here's my resignation. I'm out. And then to be told, no, 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 all is forgiven. You don't have to carry that weight, nor do you need to go look for another job. Learn from your mistakes, but man, get back to work. The surprise, amazement, relief and joy that that man must have experienced. Simply because his boss had a particular disposition, a particular way of seeing this situation. The salesman's reality turned on his boss's character, his boss's way of thinking. And that story came to my mind as I was reading Exodus 33 and 34 this past week, because last Sunday we left the Israelites in much the same position, completely different details, but actually a very similar position. Uh, You recall from chapter 32, uh, Moses is up on the mountain getting instructions from God about how this relationship between God and his people is going to work. And while Moses is up there, the people are down at the bottom of the mountain breaking the very rules that God is writing on the top of the mountain, while he's writing them. The first rules are, don't have any other gods before me, and don't make graven images, and there they are, down at the bottom of the mountain, creating a golden calf, worshipping it as an idol, and calling it Yahweh, their God. And God at this point says, I'm done with him, chapter 33, verses 4 and 6. God had said to the people, I'm done with these people. Um, uh, He told Moses rather, I'm done with these people. I'm gonna wipe them all out. I reject them and they are all gonna die. And in chapter 33 verse four, um, when the people, Moses comes down, he tells the people that, it says that when they heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on their ornaments. They took off all of their jewelry as a sign of penance and verse 6 says therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward it's this idea that here they are with their hat in their hand and they realize oh my goodness I think we may have really done it (laughs) this time which is actually exactly what happened they had Rebelled against God and sinned against God and failed God multiple times so far throughout the story of Exodus But this was kind of the the final the climactic failure the last straw and they knew it Like they knew it. They knew This is it. We're toast We're we're toast And that's where we left the Israelites last week like they're ready for the bad news They're at the office door of the boss. They blew it and they knew it So where does that leave you? (laughs) You ever been in a situation like that? You know there's no escape, you know you have to own up to it, and you just have to accept the consequences, and the consequences are going to be awful. It's a pretty low place to be. Well, Moses had gone up to the mountain to to beg God to show mercy by forgiving their sin and dwelling with his people, not rejecting them, even though they clearly did it and they were without excuse. Um, The the Israelites had done nothing to put God in their debt. They had done nothing to to make him forgive them. Moses just begs for his mercy. Now why would God do that? If God was going to give the Israelites mercy, why would that happen at all? You see, the issue was God's character, not the Israelites' behavior. They didn't deserve any forgiveness. That's abundantly clear in the text but there is still a chance for forgiveness on the basis of God's character and that's the subject of today's passage. What I think is really the theological high point, the climactic moment in the entire story of Exodus. Let's pick this up in chapter 33, verse 17. When God says to Moses, I will do everything you've asked because you have found favor in my sight, Moses then says, verse 18, please show me your glory. Now, just pause there for a minute. That's one of those things I read in the Bible and I go, well, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know about you, but that, that's not what I'm expecting him to say. It's like, okay, we you're going to do anything I want, please, please forgive your people. Please save us. Please don't wipe us all out or something like that. But what he says to God is, please show me your glory. What does he mean by that? And why is he saying that? when he's up there to intercede on behalf of the people so God doesn't wipe them out. We get an interesting insight into that when we look at God's response in verse 19. Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name. This is a thread that's been running through this past uh, chapter. Uh, Back in verse 13, Uh, which we saw last week, Moses had said to God, now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways so that I might know you. So that I can find favor with you. Show me your ways. Now he's saying, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I will show you my goodness. It seems like in this passage, God's ways and his glory and his goodness are all different ways of saying exactly the same thing. Moses is asking God, God, would you show me who you really are, like at the core of your being? What what kind of a guy are you, if I could put it that way? What kind of a person are you? What makes you tick? What really drives you? What's your character? He's saying, God, show me your heart. Moses wants to see and experience who God is at the core of his character. He wants to know God's heart. Why? Why is that the, the essence of what Moses is asking? I think it's because God's character is the only thing that will determine the Israelites' fate at this point. It's the only thing. I mean, after all, they had to deal with God, right? They had entered into it all the way back in chapter 24. God, everything you say we're going to do, God says, fine, here's what I say, and then they failed to do it. I mean, they, their, their their fate and their destiny, if it hangs on their own performance, they're already toast, They have no hope. There's nobody else that's gonna come rescue them. The only hope they have is if God simply decides to forgive them even though they don't deserve it. Why would God do that? Why wouldn't God bring the hammer down on them that they deserve? nothing outside of his own nature is stopping him from doing that. So the only thing left is God, are you the kind of person who could forgive even this people? You see, God's character is at the heart of the whole thing. They're either toast or they're saved. The one determining factor is God's character. So at the outset, you know, we said that that Exodus was a book about God. We started this study in the book of Exodus back in the fall, and, and we said our very first Sunday that at the end of the day, the book of Exodus is really a book about God. Uh, it's not primarily a book about Moses, even though he's a central figure in it. It's not really a book about the Israelites. It's not a book about the Pharaoh who lived back then. Exodus is not really a book about the 10 plagues or the 10 commandments. It's not a book about the parting of the Red Sea. It is a book about God. And that comes into clear focus here in this climactic passage. It's a book about who God is and therefore what he does and how that affects his people both then and now because who God is determines our reality. It determines our present. It determines our future. It determines our experience. It determines our destiny. That's what Moses was realizing here and that's what the Israelites understood. And what we find is God responds. He starts to show him Moses his glory, and the beginning of chapter 34, the Israelites get, it turns out, another chance. Hope against hope, they get another chance. Uh, chapter 34 begins, Yahweh, God said to Moses, cut for yourself two stone tablets like the first and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Whoa, stop the ship. <laughs> From the perspective of the Bible, that verse is Huge! That's gigantic. That's, that's massive. God is going to rewrite the terms of the covenant? You see, the command to cut two new stone tablets is basically God signifying that he was going to go ahead and enter into the covenant relationship with the Israelites that he was trying to enter before when they already broke that relationship. When Moses smashed the original stone tablets, it was a way of saying, the covenant's off. And God said, it is off. I'm done with them. I'm going to wipe them all out. I will never be with them. I reject them. That was chapter 32. Now, here we are, barely a chapter later, and God is saying, I'm going to enter in again. I'm going to give them another chance. I'm going to go ahead and enter this relationship with these people. He's going to be with them after all. It's as if God is handing that resignation letter back to the Israelites and saying, I'm not going to accept this from you. Even though I should, even though you deserve it, I'm not going to accept this from you. Your your final word from me right now is not going to be judgment and death, even though that's what you deserve. I have a better word for you. I will be with you. I will love you. Get back to work. You still have hope. Why? 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 Why is God saying that to them? What does that tell us about Him and how we relate to Him? I mean, as readers, like, we're meant to soak up the surprise, the amazement that this was God's answer, the relief that the Israelites must have felt, and the joy that they actually still have hope for their future. We realize the same thing that that IBM salesman did. I mean, this this good news is is undeserved and it's completely unexpected and it's good news it's there only because of the boss's character. God forgives because God's a forgiver. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I'll show you my glory. Get ready to get those stone tablets because we're gonna enter back into a relationship that they don't deserve. This is my goodness. This is my ways. This is my glory. This is my heart. This is my character. Which really leads us to, I think, the heart of this whole book, Exodus chapter 34, verses five through 10. What's so great about God? That's not a question. It's a statement. God is going to show his people what's so great about him. In verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that is Moses, there, and he proclaimed the name of Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh. God, God here is announcing his name, Um Meaning he's announcing the essence of his character. Moses, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to show you my ways. I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to show you my goodness. I'm going to reveal the core of my heart and my character to you. This is who I am. You ready? Moses is like, wow, yeah, I'm ready. So what does God himself say that God is like at the core of his being? Here's what he tells us. I am merciful, I am gracious, I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love literally to the thousandth generation, that's what that says. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God says several key things about himself here first of all he says he's merciful he's merciful that that implies that there's this idea of um i'm I'm not going to give you the bad that you deserve i'm going to have mercy you deserve punishment you deserve evil and destructive things but i'm going to give you good things that's mercy i'm not going to treat you uh poorly but it's not just what god is going to do what he's saying is that this is this is who he is God is predisposed to be for us, not against us, even when we've been against him. That's what the Bible's saying. I don't know about you, but I like to think of myself as a very open-minded person, a very friendly person, somebody who always believes the best in everybody. But the truth be told, you don't have to do very much if you offend the wrong people or make me or those that I love feel threatened. I'm immediately against you, you know? You slap me in the face, I immediately just want to hit you right back. That's the nature of who I am. If you cross one little thing, I'm not for you anymore. You're a bad person and you need to be dealt with. Do you know what this is telling us? God says, I'm predisposed toward mercy. I am naturally bent to be for you even when you spit in my face, even when you deserve my judgment. My bent is toward mercy. That's who I am at the core of my character merciful. Secondly, he says he's gracious. <laughs> he's he's grace disposed. He's bent toward being gracious or extending grace. That's very similar to mercy, it's just a broader category. Grace is, is just treating people better than they deserve. Um, th- that can include mercy, the idea of, of not treating somebody as badly as they deserve, but that's kind of reducing a negative. The idea of grace goes beyond that to also extending a positive. It includes favor, giving far more good than someone deserves simply because you love them, because you care about them. Cut says, this is who I am at the very core of my being. And speaking of love, he goes on and he says, I am abounding in steadfast love. Those words are worth chewing on and thinking about and turning over and over in our minds a little bit abounding in steadfast love steadfast is like it's just there it's like a rock no matter how many waves crash over it like some of the big rocks on the oregon coast the wave buries it over and then pulls out and the rock is just there it never move no matter how much my failure and my sin and my shortcomings crash against the rock of God's love he says it's steadfast i still love you even when you don't deserve it because my love for you is not rooted in you it's rooted in me this is who i am so steadfast god says this is his love that it lasts to the thousandth generation That's a hyperbolic and poetic way of saying my love will just continue throughout the ages. It's not going anywhere. And as if to make the point even more rich, he says, I'm abounding in steadfast love. Abounding. He's like, I I got more love for you than the universe could possibly contain. It's like a, a cup that's already full and you just keep pouring water into it and it's just spilling over the end, the, the edges. It's just flowing out. The cup can't contain it all. My life can't contain all of God's love. You know what this means? It means I can't outfail the love of God. I can't outsin the love of God. For some of us who struggle to believe that God really loves us, I mean, maybe he loves other people, or maybe he loved me to a point, but I have done enough of whatever that there's no way, I mean, if ever there's a limit that, that, that God's love has, man, I've run into that limit. We would do well to chew on these words. This is what God is saying about God, and he knows what he's talking about. My love is abounding, and it is steadfast. That part of me that feels like, I'm not sure God really does fully love me, needs to get brought head on in in collision with what God says about himself. And then we need to ask ourselves and we need to preach the truth to our emotions and to our heart and say, do I believe me and what I feel or do I believe God and what he said? God, help me believe, help me not just believe, but help me anchor myself in the reality of your abounding, overflowing, steadfast love. My cup is not bigger than God's love. I cannot fill it up to a point and then it it runs out and my cup, my need is just too big. That's not what happens. God's love overflows. And lastly, he tells us he's very specific about it. His abounding love means that he is predisposed to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. That was so appropriate, clearly, to this immediate context where his people had sinned so grievously. He says, here's what my love means. It means that that I will forgive. That's who I am. That's my natural inclination. God's love motivates him. It it, it predisposes him, among other things, to be a God who forgives sin. The reality was an amazing, joyful, relieving, and hope-filled reality. And there was only one reason that that was the case. Because God is who he is. God's character determined their reality. And yet God points out one more thing, just so that we're not confused. He says, not only will I forgive sin and iniquity, middle of verse 7, but I will by no means clear the guilty. Now, this is important because not only is God predisposed toward love, but he's also predisposed toward justice, toward doing right. And doing right means you never ignore a wrong and you never minimize sin and evil because that's not right to do so. I mean, lest anyone mistake God's forgiving nature for, like, God just sort of sweeping evil under the carpet— You know, or ignoring, wrongdoing, or or trying to pretend that if somebody sins against his glory or sins against another person, that that somehow just doesn't matter. God says, no, 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 no. He makes it very clear. He will not let the slightest act of evil go without its just and appropriate punishment. He says, don't mistake my forgiveness for saying evil doesn't matter as if I'm just some sort of cosmic teddy bear who doesn't care if you do wrong or not or hurt people or not or defame my glory or sin against others. No, no, I, I care about all that. And every evil act will be accounted for and paid for. I'm disposed toward mercy and grace and love and forgiveness, but I will by no means clear the guilty and just dismiss wrong. So how can that be? How can that be? How can he be so predisposed toward forgiveness but not clear the guilty? Because forgiving seems to be clearing the guilty. Having mercy seems to be clearing the guilty. So so how is this going to work out? You know, interestingly, in this passage, God doesn't explain. He doesn't explain. He just announces. Moses, this is who I am totally merciful and loving but I will by no means clear the guilty. He doesn't explain, he simply renews the covenant and he blesses his people with his forgiveness and with his presence in a way that alters their present, their future, their destiny, and their eternity. Since Exodus is a book about God and In fact, Exodus, as we've said several times, is really a microcosm of the whole Bible's story. It's kind of a a micro-narrative of the meta-narrative of all of life. It tells us some important things about who God is and how that affects us. You see, God never changes. His character is always the same. So so the God who announced his character here in Exodus 34 to Moses and the ancient Israelites is the same God that you and I gather to worship and to pray toward and that we seek to hear from even now. He's the same God. He hasn't changed. So we know that we're in the same boat with God as the Israelites were. That means that God loves right now massively beyond what we can deserve what we've ever experienced from another human being and beyond what we could hope for and God stands ready to forgive your every sin past, present, and future right now but this also means that God will punish every sin and call every sin to account every single one of them how does this work? That's a question that that the Old Testament raises in passages like this and never really fully answers until we find ourselves in the New Testament, in the birth and the life and the death of our Savior Jesus Christ. How does God's grace and his mercy and his love correspond with this idea that he's going to leave no guilty sin or sinner unpunished? Well, it comes together when God himself becomes human when Jesus himself, the God-man, comes and lives a sinful life in our place and dies a sinner's death in our place. He paid for your sins on the cross so that God the Father can now shower you and I with his steadfast, loving, mercifully sin-forgiving grace, every sin brought into account, paid for by a substitute so that grace and mercy can reign. if you have never come to Jesus overtly with your words as a broken person who has nothing to offer, hat in hand with a resignation letter that says, God, it is my fault, I deserve nothing but judgment, and I wanna receive your mercy, then I wanna encourage you to do that right now. You see, our pride will kill us and God will have none of it. In order to find life in Christ, we need to come broken and recognizing that every sin will be accounted for. But God is predisposed to be gracious toward us if we will confess our sins, Then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So to my fellow Christians, let me say this. God's character determines our reality. How can we bring our personal experience right now into line with God's character? With the challenges and the opportunities that are before us right now, how could we be better anchored in his character? That's a question I want to encourage us to think about and talk about with one another this week. Uh, Perhaps um, we are facing a time of, of real grief and yet God announces himself as a loving comforter How can i anchor my experience in that reality of god's character many of us are facing times of loss both personally perhaps financially god calls himself a provider how can i anchor my experience in the reality of his character because his character determines my reality am i allowing it to determine my experience how can we experience god's other oriented, self-giving love in such a time that we're living in, which is an opportunity to reach out to friends and neighbors rather than to go inside of worry and fear and self-protection. God's character determines our reality. How do we let it determine our experience? God has great things in store for this church in this time because of who he is. If we will anchor our experience in his character, because that's what determines. Our reality. Father God, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us through your word, through our experience. And I pray, Father God, that our experience where it does not reflect you, but it rather reflects our circumstances around us or our own thoughts and feelings and opinions. God, would you drive those shadows away in the blazing light of your glory and your goodness. God, may we see you more clearly, may we look at you more intently so that we see you clearly, and like Moses, beg you to reveal your ways to us so that we might know you and find that you are pleased with us because we are living in response to who you are, not according to what we're seeing around us or thinking or feeling. And God, through that, would you shine the light of who you are into a world that is confused, fearful, anxious, concerned, and wondering about the future right now. God, may the light of the God who holds the future in his hands shine through your church right now. We present ourselves to you and ask that you would use us in this way for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we ask it, amen.